This program is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ. Back in 2012, in the mountains of rural southwest China, six men went into a small abandoned copper mine to clean up bat guano, or bat poop. Then they got sick, and three of them died. Doctors couldn't figure out what they had, so they called in a world-renowned Chinese research center to figure out what they died of. This is my colleague, Wall Street Journal senior writer, Betsy McKay. The Wuhan Institute of Virology has China's most advanced labs. It's renowned for studying coronaviruses. Many of those coronaviruses come from southwest China, where the mine was located. That region is a hotspot for coronaviruses and bats. Several years after the mine workers died, some scientists from the Institute wrote up a report on what they found. Turns out they identified several coronaviruses in the mine, including one from the same family as the one that caused the first SARS epidemic in the early 2000s. It didn't gain a whole lot of attention at the time. Then, in late 2019, people started getting infected with COVID-19 caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The first known cases broke out in Wuhan, China, and that sparked increased global interest in the city and in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Then, the Wuhan Institute of Virology researchers wrote another paper saying they'd found a virus that, at the time, was the closest known relative of SARS-CoV-2. But critically, they didn't mention that it came from the mine. And they gave it a different name from the one they'd used in that earlier paper. But even with the name change, scientists abroad spotted similarities in viral sequencing data that suggested a link to the mine. And that intensified interest in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, with some wondering why it hadn't highlighted the connection and why it changed the virus's name. Lots of questions about this virus found in the mine and what it represented, and disclosure from the scientists wasn't great about that. The Wuhan Institute scientists say the name was changed to reflect the name of the bat, the place, and the year that it was found. With the pandemic surging, the abandoned mine and what was found in it started to get a lot of attention. Global health agencies wanted to check it out. Journalists wanted to talk to local residents. Chinese authorities set up roadblocks. My colleague Jeremy Page has been covering China for the journal for a decade, and he found a way to get there. I sort of drove around past the point where the roadblock was, Instead of approaching the roadblock, I took a long detour up to a point sort of higher in the mountains. Then he hopped on his mountain bike. And loaded up with a lot of water and some food and other provisions. And then it was a sort of five to six hour ride down, mostly downhill. Unfortunately, quite a lot of uphill as well. It's a very, very mountainous area. 
After he arrived in the rural village, Jeremy talked with some residents and was able to find the old mine. He found no scientific field stations there or other evidence that Chinese authorities were testing locals, even though that's what global health authorities were recommending. By the time I got there, it was near dusk, so I only had a limited amount of time to explore. There wasn't a whole lot to see there. It had been abandoned for so long and it was so overgrown. Many scientists have since concluded that none of the viruses from the mine is close enough to the COVID-19 one to have been its source. Even so, this episode highlights the confusion and lack of transparency that would permeate the entire search for the origins of the global pandemic. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, we review the international search for how the pandemic started with reporters Jeremy Page, Betsy McKay, and Amy Doxer-Marcus, who investigated this story for more than a year. What went wrong? Will the question of how and where COVID-19 began ever be settled? And what needs to happen differently in the future to more quickly identify, contain, and even prevent future pandemics? If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. In the search for the origin of COVID-19, there were two big, now well-known theories that investigators delved into immediately. The first is that the virus jumped from animals to humans. That's because most of the first known cases of COVID-19 were found in the vicinity of the Wanan market in Wuhan. That's a place where live animals were sold for food. Again, here's reporter Betsy McKay. Many virologists do believe that the likelihood is greater that this virus that caused the pandemic emerged into humans from an animal, you know, naturally in the wildlife trade, on a wildlife farm, something of that nature. And the reason is, is there's a pattern of this happening. I mean, viruses, more viruses are emerging and jumping to humans. So it would not be a surprise at all. Then there is the lab leak theory that something went wrong at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, as we said, specializes in studying coronaviruses. Everybody, in fact, in the beginning was asking the question, could this have come from a laboratory? Because there are a couple of very advanced laboratories in Wuhan, China, that um, study bat coronaviruses. This idea was quickly popularized by then-President Donald Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in early 2020. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. What gives you a high degree of confidence that this originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. 
To be clear, no U.S. intelligence agency reports have been made public so far that can confirm any of these allegations. There isn't any evidence. There isn't any smoking gun that says this came from a lab or this could have come from a lab. The evidence really is what everybody started with, which is these labs happen to be in Wuhan. China has repeatedly denied that the virus that causes COVID-19 escaped from one of its labs. But the whole issue only added to political tensions surrounding the search for the virus's origin. While the pandemic continued to spread, China was pushed into a defensive position long before the investigation could get started. It wound up taking a full year for the World Health Organization to gain approval from the Chinese government for an international team of experts, virologists, zoologists, and epidemiologists, to go to Wuhan to investigate. And this delay meant researchers were fighting against time to find the source of the virus. But China says it provided timely access and cooperated fully with the WHO. The WHO-led investigators who finally reached Wuhan in January of 2021 were trying to find out how the virus got into humans. A likely hypothesis seen with prior coronaviruses was that a bat was living with the pathogen and it got transferred to another host animal and from that animal made its way into people. In just the last 20 years, there is evidence that bat coronaviruses caused viral outbreaks in people three times. So the WHO-led team started looking for this host animal. A good place to start that search was the Wanan market in Wuhan, where many of the early COVID-19 cases were confirmed, and again, where those live animals were being sold. They were kept in crowded conditions, caged, butchered on site. And these are conditions in which viruses are known to spread and can jump from animals to humans, can infect humans. But by the time the WHO-led investigators landed in Wuhan, again, more than a year after the first cases were identified, most of the animals on farms that supplied that market had been sold or killed as part of a Chinese public health effort to stop the spread of the virus. You have to remember that, you know, early during an outbreak, things are pretty chaotic. They were seeing all these patients coming in from the market. This is Dr. Robert Gary, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Tulane Medical School. He's also the co-author of research from early in the pandemic. It hypothesized that the virus was transferred to humans from an animal. They were knew they had animals there, and it was not an illogical conclusion that, hey, there's a lot of animal-to-human transmission going on. Gary doesn't fault Chinese authorities for destroying the animals in the market, even though some of the evidence that could have helped to reveal COVID-19's origins was likely destroyed along with them. By the time the WHO-led investigators got there, they couldn't find any trace of the virus in animal samples taken from the market. The WHO-led team also visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but they were forced to be fairly hands-off. Here's our colleague, Jeremy Page, again. They could ask a few questions, um, but they couldn't examine any of the raw data or see sort of samples and do the kind of forensic 
examination that many scientists believe would be necessary to really establish if it it could have uh, come from a lab, or at least to rule that out. The WHO-led experts especially wanted access to blood samples from a Wuhan blood bank from people who had experienced pneumonia-like illnesses in the fall of 2019 to see if there were early cases of COVID-19. But they were not given access to them. This lack of transparency from the Chinese government fueled public speculation that China was hiding something. Or worst case, that maybe the pandemic was the result of a lab experiment gone wrong. I think it really highlights a question at the heart of this debate, and that is, does China's behavior simply reflect the instinctive opacity of its political system? Or is there specific information that it doesn't want to share with the outside world? The WHO-led investigators expressed frustration over the lack of access to original lab reports and blood samples they received during their near-four-week stay in the country. Chinese authorities say they shared large amounts of information, including some raw data with the WHO-led team, but that some data could not be copied or taken out of the country because of privacy concerns. After its trip, the WHO-led team looked at everything it had collected and voted in a show of hands on what seemed like the most likely origin of the pandemic. And crucially, at the end of that trip, the WHO-led team concluded that a lab leak was extremely unlikely. And many other people in the scientific community, or at least a significant number of other scientists, felt that was going too far, or at least they hadn't had sufficient access to draw such a a clear conclusion. Because of a lack of evidence, many in the broader scientific community called for a deeper investigation into both the natural origin hypothesis and the lab leak theory. So after that, then opinion started to shift again in the scientific community because various individuals, first privately and then increasingly publicly, began to say, hang on, you know, they really should have been able to look into that a bit more closely. U.S. intelligence agencies were also unable to say for sure how the virus originated, partly due to a lack of data from China. The agencies released an unclassified report of their assessment in August 2021, concluding only that the virus was not developed as a biological weapon and that Chinese authorities likely had no foreknowledge of the virus before the first known cases emerged. Coming up, why researchers say finding the origin is so important. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. It's been two years since the pandemic started. There are variants like Delta, now Omicron, surging, and experts anticipate there will likely be more coming. But there are also vaccines and treatments, including at-home pills in the works. 
I asked Professor Gary at Tulane Medical School why finding the origin of the virus still mattered. You know, what you do want to look at are these early cases and see where the cases are clustered. Gary says this is essentially epidemiology 101. To explain, he tells me the story of a nasty cholera outbreak that happened in a neighborhood in London back in 1854. People were getting really sick. At the time, most people thought the disease was being transmitted through particles in the air. But a physician, now known as the father of epidemiology, figured out what was really going on. His name is John Snow. No, nothing to do with the uh, Game of Thrones. Dr. Snow talked to family members of people who had gotten sick. He searched for something all the victims had in common. He drew up a now-famous map of the neighborhood and plotted each case. And that's when he realized they all drew water from the same local well. Snow hypothesized that the cholera was coming not from the air, but from contaminated water. You know, the, the cases were all just around that pump. Uh, John Snow triangulated to, you know, where that pump was at, looked at it, found the cholera there and said, look, this is what's causing the outbreak. Snow convinced the town officials to remove the well's pump handle and prevented more people from getting sick by drinking from that well. Not all virologists agree, but Professor Gary says that now infamous animal market in Wuhan, China, could be considered like the modern-day equivalent of the London pump handle. A lot of those early cases are within like a one-square-mile area around the non-seafood market. It's very striking. Some of these methods, like contact tracing, are still done today, except with phone calls and apps. But researchers these days also use more sophisticated techniques to pinpoint viral outbreaks. One way to do this is to scrutinize a community's blood supply from all available sources to see if a population has antibodies that indicate it was exposed to a specific virus. And researchers want to do this in Wuhan to review China's blood bank donations from before the outbreak was recognized. A World Health Organization-led team is also interested in any samples that exist from residents of Wuhan who live around that Wanan market. My colleague, reporter Amy Doxer-Marcus, has been covering the origins of the pandemic. Blood donations can be a source for figuring out where viruses come from because scientists can study them. They can try to track where the people were when they first got infected, when their first signs of illness came. They can um, study the samples to see the level of antibodies that may exist, and um, they can get a lot of information out of them. Blood bank data could help us understand how long the virus has been circulating and pinpoint where it originated. But time to do that in China may be running out. Frozen blood supplies can degrade after a couple of years, and older samples are often cleared to make way for new blood. The main blood bank in Wuhan told the World Health Organization-led team it would keep samples longer than two years, but it's unclear if others in China will do the same. Amy says much remains unknown about these blood samples, including whether they've been tested already and if the data is not being shared. 
So there have um, been some papers that we have covered during our, our ongoing look at the origin of the virus that argue that the window is rapidly closing in order to test biological samples that were taken early in the pandemic and to, to use that information to help try to unravel how the outbreak initially occurred. Some researchers are advocating for the world to take a more proactive approach to blood testing and monitoring so that future diseases and outbreaks can be discovered and ideally slowed before they go global. We can use the information that's stored in people's immunological memory. Until November 2021, Dr. Michael Minow was a professor at Harvard School of Public Health and Medical School. He's now the chief science officer of biotech software company eMed. Its platform enables at-home diagnostic testing services. Minna says that blood acts as a sort of immune memory system, holding antibodies that point toward all the diseases a person has had in their lifetime, even if they're not sick at the moment. If we can unlock those memories, we can start to identify what it is people have been infected with, and how recently even. And we can start to be able to use that as a very crucial tool to start building the data repositories we need to understand how do different viruses transmit? How quickly do they move? What are the rules of how viruses move around? Dr. Minna says you can detect and profile these antibodies even years later, even if you don't know the virus you're looking for. He says he could set up a profile using just a drop or two of blood or saliva. I could put that drop into essentially a little tube and I could profile it and get a readout of hundreds of thousands of different antibodies you may have against all pathogens you could have ever been exposed to. Dr. Minna and his colleagues want to create a so-called global immunological observatory, basically an early monitoring system of the antibodies showing up in people's blood around the world. Minna says epidemiologists could track existing and emerging diseases around the world this way and then share the information with the public. Just like meteorologists take weather data from monitors around the world and use it to predict weather patterns that we can easily access. I would like us at some point to be able to open up our phones and ask the question, you know, is there a lot of rhinovirus going around my community today? Is flu happening in my community is my child who is sniffling today most likely sniffling because of flu and I shouldn't bring them to see grandma? Or is my child sniffling because of you know, an adenovirus infection and maybe still shouldn't bring them to see grandma, but the, but the consequences are quite a bit lower? To do this, they would need to learn to accurately decode these immune memories in blood, and that's still in development. Through a pilot program, Minna and his colleagues have been building better technologies to be able to detect and profile disease antibodies, again, even years later. There's another research technique that helps virologists understand what a disease could do long before an outbreak happens. It's called gain-of-function research. And there's a lot of back and forth over what even qualifies as this type of research. But many scientists consider it essential to limiting future outbreaks. During gain-of-function research, virologists take a pathogen, and in the lab, they give that pathogen a new property or function. And this is used to try to figure out how a virus might evolve in the future, 
to create potential vaccines or therapies. It's also used to test whether a virus could become more transmissible if it undergoes certain genetic changes. And this is done in the hopes of keeping a step or two ahead of the virus and predicting what variations it is likely to take next. Amy Doxer Marcus says there is a point at which this research turns especially controversial. Once you have a pathogen that can cause a disease in people, that's a whole other issue. And it's something that scientists worry about because on the one hand, they want to study these pathogens. They need to understand it. You know, you need to know who your enemy is. And so that's why it's so essential to study. On the other hand, there are scientists who say, yes, this is a very important area of research, but these pathogens are so potentially dangerous that why do we want to take a risk and enhance their ability to infect people just to answer some questions that we might be able to find answers to in a less risky way? Amy says the White House may get involved in the issue. The Biden administration has signaled that they want to give new scrutiny to this. They want national security officials more engaged in thinking about the biosafety implications of working with these pathogens in labs. Urbanization, deforestation, more meat consumption and climate change. Experts say they are all increasing the potential for viruses to spill over from animals to humans. Professor Gary at Tulane says scientists need all the tools they can get to prepare for the future. So the question is, among the hundreds of thousands of viruses and animals, which ones are the threats to humans? And we can figure out some of this using tools like gain-of-function research. New research standards would ultimately need buy-in from governments and scientists. Same for that proposed global immunological blood surveillance system. Getting global consensus is now more difficult, with geopolitical tensions so high and nations exhausted from fighting the pandemic. Up next, why despite all we've been through during COVID-19, society may actually be less prepared for the next inevitable pandemic. This program is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's vanta.com WSJ. We reported at the beginning of this year about all the ways the pandemic sparked scientific collaboration. Researchers with diverse backgrounds came together in unprecedented ways to battle a common enemy, the virus. Our colleague Betsy McKay says that multidisciplinary approach was working and is vital to the study of dangerous pathogens. These teams at the Wuhan Institute of Virology worked with Americans. They worked with scientists elsewhere in Asia because everybody brought something to the table in this network. Everybody had a different area of expertise. If that network is blown apart, everybody loses. 
That network is supposed to be fostered by the World Health Organization. It can guide nations that lack strong early monitoring systems on how best to track viral hotspots. It can offer consensus on how best to share information on emerging diseases. And the agency can coordinate responses to outbreaks and set global standards for treatment. But some say its track record is wobbly. Lawrence Gostin is a professor of global health law at Georgetown University. He's also the director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law, though in that role, he does not receive funding from the WHO. You know, I start by giving the World Health Organization high marks for setting a very important ethical tone. But Gostin says it also made a number of crucial errors. It was slow to recommend masks or to recognize the aerosol spread of the virus. Most egregiously, Gaston says WHO echoed China's early statements that there was no human-to-human transmission of the virus. The WHO repeated those messages and even praised China's transparency. But the evidence was overwhelming that there was a SARS-like virus, that it should have been reported much earlier and more transparently. The WHO's own leadership team has admitted to some faults in its handling of the pandemic. But many say the organization has to do a lot with a little. The WHO's annual budget this year is $5.8 billion. That's about a third less than the 2021 fiscal budget of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention alone. And at the moment, WHO also lacks authority. This entire search and the controversy over it has, you know, exposed the limitations of WHO. WHO can't tell countries what to do. It can't, you know, lead an investigation into the origin of a pandemic. It can't just go in and say, we're here, we're going to start, you know, looking around. The WHO normally meets in May, but this year a special second session of the World Health Assembly was held in late November of the World Health Assembly. During the meeting, member states agreed to form an intergovernmental negotiating body to draft a pandemic treaty. It would create new procedures during outbreaks that could include an independent verification of state reports. During COVID-19, that kind of rule might have provided more impetus for all nations to be more transparent from the start. If this rift among nations and the World Health Organization remains unresolved, some experts say nations are less likely to create innovative strategies to prevent outbreaks. And we could all find ourselves at greater risk from the next inevitable pandemic. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor. This episode was reported by Betsy McKay, Amy Doxer-Marcus, and Jeremy Page as part of their year-long investigation into the origins of the pandemic. Maddie Bender is our fact-checker. Our sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Caitlin Nicholas is our producer. Kateri Yokum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. And I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.
This program is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.